Our mission at Crosspoint Baptist Church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. You know, that's not just my job. That's not just Pastor Jess's job. That's our job as a church family to go out and tell people the good news. You know, the people we rub shoulders with, that we love here in, in our own hometown about a great God that came and died for us. And then how to live our life for him. We're going to start a new series. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this new series, what I'm calling it. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But I'm calling this new series we're going to begin today is How God Makes Bad Men Good. The book of Romans. And so if you have your Bibles with you, if you could open to Romans chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 1 through 7 this morning, and I'm calling this sermon the good news. And so today is day one, and we're going to begin this series as we walk all the way through the book of Romans. And this is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible, because this book had one of the greatest profound effects on my life. Um, I got saved the day a pastor preached Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, so that's my favorite verse. But if I'm going to pick a chapter, Romans chapter 7 is my favorite chapter in the Bible, because it greatly influenced me. I'll probably tell that story story, how, why, um, when we get to Romans chapter 7. But I really struggled. What am I going to call this series? Because I'm going to get up in front of you, and I'm going to say, this is our series, and then talk about the book of Romans. And I thought about calling it um, the book that changed the world, because that's exactly what this book is. The book of Romans is the book that changed the world. That's exactly what Pastor Adrian Rogers called his series. I'm sure he preached through Romans more than once, but at least one time he called uh, his series the book that changed the world. But since Pastor uh, Dr. Adrian Rogers called it that, I, I'm not going to steal his title. I wanted to come up with something else. But here's what the book of Romans is about. If I could boil down uh, the book of Romans to its simplest terms, the book of Romans is about the imputed righteousness of Christ. So if you've ever wondered, hey, what's that book about? The book of Romans is about the imputed righteousness of Christ. Can you remember those five words? Yeah? Can you say it with me? Say it with me. The imputed righteousness of Christ. Okay, that's it. If you can remember those five words, and if you know what those five words mean, well, then you know what Romans is about. But I thought you might get tired of hearing that every single week, because I'm going to say it every week. And so probably like by week 40, you're like, okay, Pastor John, I'm tired of this. But so I thought, you know, what else could I call it? And I'm a pretty simple guy. I learn things if you put them in its simplest terms. And so here's another way to think of the imputed righteousness of Christ. You could be th it could be thought of as how God makes bad men good. So that's what I'm going to call this series, because that's what Romans is about. It's how a holy God can make sinful men and women good. And then we're going to talk about the ramifications of being declared righteous by a holy God. Because if you've been declared righteous by a holy God, it should really affect the way you live your life, right? This isn't just head knowledge that we're coming into this building to hear about. It should change everything in your life. And, and, and so we're going to spend the next several months discussing that, Lord willing, and Kate, unless he comes and takes us back to be with him. And then none of this really matters anymore. But so that's what we're going to be in for, I'm going to guess, until somewhere around August, September, maybe longer. Here's something I think most of us will agree on. I think most of us will agree on you know, whether you get your news source from Fox or CNN or somebody else, if you get the news at all, 
the vast majority of news that we hear is incredibly negative. Okay? One reason that so many of us get just so tired of watching any news source is just negative, negative all the time. Can we agree on that part? Yes, okay. Um, I don't know about you, but it just wears me out after a while. Do you know why news sources do that? They do that because it, the, the, a negative story will grab the attention of the casual watcher longer than a positive story will. That's why the vast majority of news sources that you're we're watching TV and then there's some attention-grabbing graphic followed by some attention-grabbing sound and boom, and this comes out and it's followed by an incredibly negative story. And when they do that, we will sit there and we will watch it all day long. Um, I remember back in the days following 9-11, I'm sure most of you remember that, but I was glued to my couch. I'm just on my couch. I'm watching TV for like a week straight. I really got zero accomplished because all I'm doing, I'm watching what ha- what's happening in New York City and Washington, D.C. in a field outside of Pennsylvania. And so I just watched TV all day long. And by the end of about a week, I was drained physically, mentally, worn out. And I imagine most of you did too. And I'm saying all this because here we're in the book of Romans, and the Apostle Paul comes out right from the get-go, and he doesn't give us negative news. In fact, he gives us great news. And this great news is the best news anybody will ever hear. We get bad news every day, right? But the Apostle Paul, he comes on the scene and says, hey, I've got great news. In fact, this is often awesome news. And the awesome news can be summed up in one word, and that word is the gospel. The word gospel, it literally means good news. If you've been going to church for a long time, you probably already knew that. Gospel, it means good news. When we hear the word gospel or gospels, We usually think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as good church-going people, right? Well, that, that word, gospels, it means good news. And the good news, it's derived from a Greek word. The Greek word is oulangelion. I'm not going to ask you to say that one, but um, that word is the word in English we get the word evangelical or evangelistic from. Paul is going to use this word, the good news, the gospel, at least 11 times in the book of Romans. And so that's how Paul is going to begin this great letter when he writes to the church in Rome and he begins it with good news. In ancient times, there was a guy that would, that would come out onto the street and he was in charge of delivering good news. He was called a heralder. And the message that he would preach was called an oulangelion, a, a good news and, or a gospel message. And so he would come out in the streets and just start yelling. He would say something along the lines of, the emperor has had a son. And so that's good news to the people. Or, or the king has ascended to the throne. More good news. These were good news statements about the emperor or king. Well, our word gospel, it, 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 our English word at least, it derives from the Anglo-Saxon word Godspell. Okay? A go- Godspell is where we get the term gospel from in English. And Godspell, it really means good story. That God has a good story. Now, some of you are probably thinking, I've heard this. 
I, I, I've been in, going to church for a long time. The gospel, that's, that's old news. That's not really good news. I need to hear some, some new news, pastor. And let me tell you, if you're inclined to think like that, then maybe you don't really know the good news. Maybe you don't understand the bad news. Because when you hear the bad news, it really makes the good news the greatest news you will ever hear. In the book of Romans, it's going to be filled with bad news. And the bad news makes the, great, the good news great. There's lots and lots of bad news. But Paul, he's going to headline, start out this, this book with good news. You're going to hear bad news before we're, before we're done. And the bad news goes something like this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're going to hear there is no one good. No, not one. Later in this chapter, in Romans chapter 1, you'll read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. And so the bad news, here's the bad news. We're guilty. We're all guilty. We've all committed crimes against a holy God, and we're going to pay for what we've done. That's bad news. I don't like that news. But here's an option number two. Option number two, somebody's paid for your crimes. And that's great news. The bad news is you can pay for it yourself. And that is really, 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 really bad news. But the good news, you don't have to pay for it. That God sent someone, it was his one and only son, to pay for your crimes and my crimes. Do you remember what the book of Romans is about? It's about the imputed righteousness of Christ or how God makes bad men and women good, okay? The book of Romans, it's really the Christian manifesto to freedom. This book is going to tell how God, through Jesus Christ, he sets people free from slavery, Slavery of, of sins and old habits and behavior. He sets us free. And when, when God, through Jesus Christ, sets us free from that slavery, listen, there's a new slavery. And that new slavery is slavery to Christ. When you get freed by God from slavery, there's a whole new slavery that we become slaves to, and it's a slave to freedom. Did you know that the book of Romans that we're going to be studying for the next several months, it really transformed some of the who's who of Christianity. There, there's guys like Augustine, greatly influenced by the book of Romans. Guys like Martin Luther. Martin Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation, and that's, he's the guy, the reason why we're not all Catholic today. So you can thank Luther for that. There's guys like John Wesley. John Wesley sparked the Methodist revival where guys would get on horseback and there were circuit riders and they would go all over our country and tell people this gospel message. Guys like William Tinsdale. If you enjoy reading your Bible in English, you can thank Mr. Tinsdale for that. Well, the book of Romans affected his life. There, there are four, I see four sections within the book of Romans, and we're not going to have time to go through all these today, but I'm just going to shotgun blast them out here for you. Section number one, we're going to talk about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is Romans chapter one through about halfway through Romans chapter three. Section number two is the grace of God. The grace of God is Romans halfway through three, all the way through Romans chapter eight. Then we come to the plan of God. And the plan of God is seen in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And then the will of God. That's the last section. And that's Romans basically chapter 12 until the end of the book. 
And with that, let's jump into the text. Let's read Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophet in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name, his name, among all the nations. I just love that. How many nations? All the nations. That's who this is for. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are beloved by God, and called to be saints, to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Right off the get-go, I hope you notice who this book is from. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. When we write letters today, we typically say something along the lines of, Dear Bob. I've really been wanting to write to you. This has been on my heart. Blah, 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 blah. Sincerely yours, John. But that's not how they start out letters back in ancient times. Ancient times flips this around, and they put the guy who wrote the letter at the very beginning. And that's really helpful when you consider that they're reading these on scrolls. Okay, so it's so much more helpful to get the guy who's writing the letter right from the get-go. Imagine you were to receive a scroll. You don't know who, who it's from. And you have to read all the way through the scroll. Scroll, and that's where the word scroll comes from. All the way through till you get to the end, and, and you find out it's somebody that's trying to call you about your extended car warranty. Right? That's no good. I want to know right from the get-go, hey, this is the Apostle Paul, the guy you already know. I'm here to tell you about this good news. And the car warranty, just throw that skull in the trash, Right? About a decade ago, there was a guy by the name of Michael Shapiro. Michael Shapiro wrote a book, and he called this book The Jewish 100. This book uh, listed out, this was Mr. Shapiro's opinion of who were the top 100 Jewish influencers of all time. The number one most influential Jewish individual, according to Mr. Shapiro, was Moses. And that makes sense. Moses was kind of one of the who's who. If you don't know who Moses is, Moses is the man that that God spoke to to write the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I have to sing it to get it right. But that's who he said the the most influential Jew ever was. And that's 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 a good one. Number two on his list, Jesus Christ. I'm like, hold the phone. To have Jesus Christ, number two on any list, in my opinion, bad list, right? Jesus is clearly the most influential person to ever walk this earth. And so um, Mr. Shapiro's list is a bad list. But he's not a Christian. He doesn't see Jesus Christ as the God-man that came for our sins. So whatever, that's on him. Number three on his list, Albert Einstein. Number four, Sigmund Freud. Stop. Uh, I've had to read a lot of Freud. Freud was a wackadoo. But anyways, that's on him. Number five, Abraham, the father of the faith. I'm like, how can he not be at least number three on this list? Whatever. But number six on this list is Saul of Tarsus. Or we would know him as Christians. We know him as the apostle Paul. Well, who is Paul? 
Well, Paul was born to Jewish parents in this town of Tarsus of Sicilia, which is modern-day southeastern Turkey. And he was, when he was born, his parents gave him a Hebrew name, and that Hebrew name was Shaul. The name Shaul means one who asks questions. Very telling if you know Saul's story. Well, Saul of Tarsus was most likely named after the first king of Israel. After all, they're both from the same tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. So it makes sense that his parents would name him after Saul. But most of us know Saul of Tarsus by a different name. Uh, we, when we were reading through, we are going through our series of Acts, we read about how Saul decided to change his name to a Roman name, Paul. Well, the name Paul, it means short. Shorty. He took on a nickname. You ever thought of the Apostle Paul as the Apostle Shorty? That's his name. And so that makes me think, well, what did Paul look like? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. So we don't exactly know. There's another source outside the Bible. We don't know if it's true or not. But let's just go ahead and assume that it is so we can get an idea what Saul might have looked like. Well, this source said that Paul, Shorty, was a short man. It said that he has thinning hair, so he has like a cul-de-sac on the top of his head. It said he had bow legs and a a big hooked nose. I think of Danny DeVito when he played Penguin in Batman. That's what I'm picturing. And this source actually said that he just had one big eyebrow. So he has a unibrow. So if you think of the Apostle Paul as tall, dark, and handsome, let me kind of squash that because he probably wasn't. He was probably short, squatty, balding with a big nose and, and an eyebrow. One big one. And when I read his letters, I try to read his letters in the voice of Frank Costanza from Seinfeld. If you know George's dad, played by Jerry Steller. Um, no, no fans of Seinfeld out there? Okay, thank you. One of my favorite ones are, you want a piece of me? You want a piece of me? Well, you got it. Oh, that Frank Costanza slays me. When I read the Apostle Paul, I try to hear it in that voice. Go ahead and try it. It's going to make the Bible so much more fun. Well, what do we know about Saul of Tarsus? Well, we know he was a very religious man. He was a religious zealot. By his own admission, his own testimony, he was a Pharisee. And he was a Pharisee that was educated under a very famous rabbi, a man by the name of Gamel. Now, Gamel was a very anti-Christian rabbi. Why do I say he was anti-Christian? Because we still have some of his writings that have survived in antiquities. One source says that Gamel once prayed, quote, Let there be no hope to them who have apostatized from the true religion. And let these heretics, however many so there might be, all perish in a moment. That was Gamel's prayer against Christians. Well, I think Saul of Tarsus... I think he took his, his, his mentor's uh, words to heart because Saul of Tarsus becomes one of the biggest antagonists against the Christian church the world had ever seen. Saul of Tarsus was a man that hunted down Christians. He arrested them. He beat them up, and he very well might likely have killed a few Christians himself. We know for certain that he consented to the killing of a deacon in Acts chapter 7 when he held the coats of the men so they could get a rock and get a good wind-up and hurl rocks at Stephen's head until he was very dead. That was Saul of Tarsus. But then there was one day. 
Saul of Tarsus is out on a hunting trip. He's on the road to Damascus. He's going to hunt down Christians. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ knocked Saul of Tarsus to the ground. And from that moment on, his life was forever changed. And so Saul goes on to change his name to Paul Shorty. And he had to kind of change his testimony, don't you think? I think his testimony went something like this. Hey, you know, there was this funny thing that happened to me. There was a day I was on to Damascus. I, on, I was on the road. I was going to hunt down some Christians. In the middle of the day, it's not like this is nighttime. No, in the middle of the day, bright light knocked me to the ground, and it was so bright. And then I heard a voice from heaven say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then so the biggest antagonist in the, in, the, in the Christian world becomes the biggest protagonist. And by his own words, his testimony goes to, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. The word servant that we read in our ESV is the word doulos. It could be translated as slave. Is that the greatest turnaround in the history of time? Saul of Tarsus, who used to hunt down and possibly murder Christians, is now saying, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. Here's where I'm going with that. If you call yourself a Christian, then you should take on that title as well. So I ask you, are you? Are you a slave to Christ? Because after all, you call him Lord. Well, if you call Jesus Lord, that implies that you are his slave. Because if Christ is your Lord, then he has lordship over your life. The word lordship, it implies servanthood. Because if there's a Lord, there's a servant, right? That's how it works. Think about it. There was a day when Jesus said to his disciples, Why do you call me Lord and you do not do the things that I say? He could be saying that to us, couldn't he? If you're a Christian, then you are called to be a slave to Christ because that is an accurate title. The Christian life that Jesus is Lord. And if he is Lord, then there is something that he wants us to do. Think back to what I said about Saul of Tarsus. Because Saul of Tarsus had two questions for the resurrected Savior, right? Question number one, who are you, Lord? That was his first question. And then he got an answer to that question. The answer was, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then Saul had a follow-up question. And the follow-up question is, what do you want me to do? You see, when you ask the question, number one, who are you, Lord? When you get the answer is, I'm Jesus Christ, the next question is, what do you want me to do? And so Saul of Tarsus becomes a servant, becomes a slave, a servant to the gospel. So often, Christian, Christianity, it's all about in their Bible study. Oh, I've got to learn about this, and I've got to learn about that. No, being a Christian is about what are you doing for the resurrected Savior. Notice also in verse 1 that Paul says, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Back when Shorty called himself Saul, he would also call himself a Pharisee. Well, the word Pharisee, it means separated ones. So Pharisees, they would pride themselves from being separated from everyone and everything that there was. 
They were so separated that a strict Pharisee, when he walked through the streets of Jerusalem, would actually tuck his robe up around himself and would hold his robe close because he didn't want any Gentiles touching him. Because if a Gentile touched a Pharisee, the Pharisee would become unclean. The story I want to share with you, it didn't happen to me. The, the church my wife and I came from, we had two lead pastors, Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger. They told this story, I just love this story, about a time when they were in Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem, and it's on Shabbat. That's Saturday. We would usually think of Sabbath. But to a Hebrew, they call it Shabbat, which means rest. And these two, my, my pastors, they wanted to go to the, the Western Wall. They wanted to go to the Wailing Wall on the Sabbath. Well, things about the old city Jerusalem, the, the streets are kind of narrow and they're very windy and there's lots of people that want to get through to the Wailing Wall and you got to go through security checkpoints. You can't have a pocket knife. Definitely can't have a gun. They're making sure there's no bombs. And so there's all these rabbis that are trying to get to the Wailing Wall. Well, here's these two Gentile pastors trying to get through and they bump into somebody. And then the the the, the the, the rabbis are yelling something at my pastors in Hebrew. And Pastor Phil turns to Pastor Roger and says, what is he saying? Pastor Roger says, he's cussing us. Because now they've been touched by these Gentiles. So they don't get to go to the Wailing Wall because they're unclean. They have to turn around. They have to go home. They have to change clothes. They have to shower before they can go and worship God. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years, Right? They're exactly the same all these centuries later. Well, here's Saul of Tarsus. They would have acted the exact way. He said, I, I am separate. He would call himself a Pharisee who's separated from everyone and everything. And now he's saying, I am separated to the gospel of God. Here's my question to you. What are you separated to? What are you separated to? Did you know that you can have a saved soul you can have a lost life. Did you know you can know Christ? You can be forgiven. All your sins forgiven. You can be going to heaven, but between earth and heaven, you're really not doing anything. You have a saved soul, but you're wasting your life. Lots of Christians give their testimony in a negative fashion. Hey, tell me about what, what it is like to be Christian. Well, I don't chew, I don't cuss, I don't, I don't drink, and I don't go with girls who do. That's usually a Christian's testimony, right? Well, here's what I say to that. Whoopity-doo! What do you do for the kingdom of God? Don't tell me on the negative side what you don't do. Tell me what on the positive side of the question you're doing for King Jesus. Because after all, he's Lord, Right? Don't give me this empty lip service and tell me what you don't do. Tell me what you do. Because we are supposed to be separated from something, but we're supposed to be separated to something. Kind of like a marriage. That's how this is supposed to work. You know, when a young couple, they come to me, they want to get ma married. They're, they're talking about separation. They're saying, I'm separated from everyone. Everybody else, I'm separated only unto you. And so when I ever, when I perform a wedding, I always start with the groom because the groom is supposed to be leading his bride in this. And when we come to that, that repeat after me part, I think most of us know, I always say forsaking all others, living only unto you as long as we both shall live. Big statement, right? I'm only going to be, I'm only to you, you and only for as long as you and I should live. Imagine if you would, 
a couple. They come together, and they have a wedding ceremony, and it's a great ceremony. And then they go back to the reception. All the, the music and the food is to die for. Then comes the honeymoon, right? And we know what happens there. They go back to the hotel room. What if the groom said, hey, sweetie, darling, sugar pie, I love you so much. You know what? I've got a girlfriend down the road, and I haven't seen her like all day long. I, I, I need to go see her. She, so I'll see you tomorrow. How, how would that go? It would go bad, right? Real bad. That, that's not good. Well, the groom needs to be separated from everyone and separated only unto her. So Paul is saying, I'm a servant. I'm an apostle. I'm separated to the gospel of God. I'm his slave. What he says goes. Paul is saying that my life is a blank check. I've just written, I've signed the check, I've given it to King Jesus, and he can cash it whatever, however he feels. That's what Paul is saying. So I ask you again, what are you separated to? Did you notice the source of the gospel? Paul states it very clearly. He says the source of the gospel is the gospel of God. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, Christianity, it's a man-made religion. It's a man-made religion. The powers of be, they came up, and they came up with this religion to keep the masses in line. Anybody heard that before? Okay, I'm the only one. Okay, thanks, guys. Now, here's what I say that. There is no way that Christianity is a man-made religion. Nobody's going to come up with this idea that, 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 that everybody's condemned. We're all going to hell, every single one of us, unless you come to, 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 to know the saving um, grace by faith in Jesus Christ. That's your only hope. That's not man-made religion. Man-made religion would go something like this. Hey, hey, you know what? Y'all are doing good. You're all doing pretty good, but you know what? I can help you do a little bit better. And what you need to do, you just need to send me a big old check every week. The bigger the check, the more I can help you, and then you're going to be doing great. That's man-made religion. If you don't like that, here's option number two. Option number two for man-made religion is, hey, I'm the spiritual leader. We're all a big family here. I'm kind of like dad. I'm the husband. And so your wives are no longer your wives. I'm the husband to your wives. That's man-made religion right there. Or here, here's a man-made religion number three. Hey, all the power needs to belong to me. Because I and I alone hear from God. So if you want to do what God wants you to do, then you need to listen to me because God and I have a direct line. That's man-made religion. Every single cult from the beginning of time, that's how the, time, the, the cult was, was founded. One, two, or all three of those things right there. Money, sex, power, boom. There's every cult ever. Man-made religion, it's all about what we can do for God. But the gospel, gospel is what God's already done for us. The gospel is from God. The apostles didn't invent the gospel. It was to, they discovered it as revealed to them from Jesus Christ. That's why Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles didn't come up with this. God gave it to them. Look back in Romans chapter 1, verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through his prophet in the Holy Scripture. Hey, where did the, the prophets, where do we find those in our Bible? They're, they're in the Old Testament, right? And so the question we should ask, why is that important? 
Why did Paul put that? Why is that verse 2 of this amazing book? That's important because there's some people that come along and go, hey, the New Testament, that's just a, a new and improved edition from the Old Testament. That, that's all it is. And then some jokers come along and say, hey, I've got even a newer improved testament. It's like a new, new, new testament. No, that's called heresy. The New Testament is not another religion that's just completely apart from the Jewish people and the revelation from God to the Jews. Christians are not a bunch of defectors from Judaism who followed some renegade leader named Jesus. No. The same revelation that's in the Old Testament is now revealed in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, now in, in the New Testament. That's why Jesus, he comes on the scene, he says, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. Right? That's why Peter, if you go read in Acts, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 men get saved. It's awesome. And then they're baptizing all these people. And the Jewish leaders, they come to Peter and they're going, hey, what's, what's this whole deal about? And Peter says, that's what is spoken about the, by the prophets. And then he goes on to quote the Old Testament to prove that it was predicted in the Old Testament. It's going to happen in the New That's why Paul, when he's in front of King Agrippa towards the end of the book of Acts, if you remember that, he says to King Agrippa, he says, hey, I'm not saying anything anything other than what Moses and the prophets already said, that Christ would suffer for our sins and rise again. What he's saying is all part of the same revelation. It's all predicted in the Old Testament. We see it happening in the New Testament. This isn't just some kind of good news that was just sprung on people haphazardly. No, it's been anticipated for centuries. Let me share with you one of the most crystal clear scriptures from the Old Testament that explains what's going to happen in the New Testament. Look in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming. Hey, there's this event that's going to happen in the future. Declares the Lord. So somebody's talking, really important. His name is God. It says, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is to the Jewish people. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That sounds like New Testament stuff, doesn't it? Verse 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each, each his brother, saying, I know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. There are so many biblical prophecies found in the Old Testament say, hey, this is what's going to happen in the future. And then whammo, we see it happening in the New Testament. So many, I don't have time to do it all in one Sunday. And these prophecies, you know, so often, you know, we turn on the news and there's some weatherman that says, hey, tomorrow there's a 50% chance of snow, right? And maybe he's right and maybe he's wrong. That's not what happens in the Bible. In the Bible, God shows up and says, there's a 100% chance of this happening. You can take this to the bank, bet your life on it, it's gonna happen. Done deal. And with that, I want you to consider for a moment some of the biblical prophecies that talk about the who, when, where, how the Messiah would come. 
It is humanly impossible to arrange the tribe of Israel that an individual would be born in. It is humanly impossible to arrange what town that guy is going to be born in. <clears throat> That's only two of dozens and dozens and dozens of the biblical prophecies that talk about the who, the where, the why, the Messiah would come. There's one scholar that said, he said this, he said, quote, In a hundred billion years, there is no chance that the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled could, could have been fulfilled without God. You see how this book is completely different than any other book there is? Because only this book says, hey, this is going to happen, and then it happens 100% of the time. Other religious books, they go, yeah, it's going to happen. Then it doesn't happen. Throw that book away. Go get a different one. Okay? So let's read what this is really about, what the gospel is really about. Look in verse 3. Concerning his son who was declared from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Hey, all those prophecies in the Old Testament, all those predictions were made. There's over 300 of them. They all point to one person. It's all about Jesus Jesus Christ is the subject of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is the subject of the New Testament. That's why Jesus said to the Jews, you maybe remember this, he said, hey, if you believe Moses, you should believe me because I'm the guy he wrote about. Let, let me give you the Bible in a nutshell. Here's the Bible in a nutshell. The Old Testament says he's coming, he's coming. And then the gospels say he's here, he's here. And then from Acts to Revelation, it says he's coming back. He's coming back. If you don't believe in a literal return and reign in Christ, I think you're about to be solely upset here really soon. Maybe that summation of the Bible is too complicated for you. Let me give you an even easier, Pastor John, three steps, too tough. Here's the Bible in two steps. It's, one, it's about one person, two events. The first half, he, he, the first time is his first coming is to deal with sin. His second coming, it's about to rule and reign with those who have been cleansed from sin. The whole Bible, it's about one person, two events, Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. But, but notice who Paul refers to Christ as. Read verse 3 again. Concerning his son, who was declared from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying Jesus is of the seed of David. That means he's fully man. And then he says he's fully God as the Son of God. You see, as the seed of David, being fully human, Jesus could fill all those predictions about a leader, about a deliverer, this guy that's going to come on the scene, he's going to save us. And as the son of God, Jesus was fully God, conceived of a virgin, born of the Spirit, sharing the same nature as God the Father. If you don't understand the term son of God, that means deity, that Jesus is God. That's what that term means. And there's so many, oh, no, that's not what that means. That means that, that there's God the Father and he has some sons. No, that's not what it means. If, if you go to the, the gospel of Mark, when Jesus is being interviewed, the high priest comes and says, hey, tell us plainly who he is. And then Jesus tells him plainly who he is, and the guy tears his robe. And he says, what other proof do we need? 
He says he's the son of God. That's blasphemy. We have to kill him because he's saying he's God come in the flesh. Fact check me on that, please. What that means is that the good news, it's not about a good man. Oh, Jesus was a good man. That statement falls woefully short. No, the good news is about the God-man. Being man, Jesus had the ability to substitute for us on that cross. I'm a man. I'm a sinful man. I need a man to take my place. But being God, he has the capacity to save all of mankind as a substitute as the only perfect sacrifice. Let's look at the scope of the gospel. This, This blows me away. Look in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God to be called saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. The good news it's not just local news. This is breaking news. This is worldwide news. It's for all people. So this is what Paul is saying. If I could sum it up in these words, he's saying God sent us to tell the whole world about Jesus. It's the greatest news ever. That's what Paul is saying. This news is not limited to one race, one place, and one time. No, but it's for all people, everywhere, in all times. That's what he's saying. That's why Paul, later in this book, he's going to say in Romans chapter 3, verse 29, he's going to say, or is God the God of the Jews only? If you don't know this, Jews will always ask a question and they answer it. It's, it's, it's like their own language. It's a language of sarcasm. Is God the God of Jews only? Or is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Paul is just asking that question and answering it right away. You're thinking, why is that important? Why does that really even matter, Pastor John? Because there is this theory that's going around there that's real dangerous. Yesterday on my my Facebook feed, this event showed up. It happened yesterday, seven years ago yesterday, I posted it. I was in Bogota. If you know Frank and Dan just got back from being in Bogota, they just got back. Well, I was on the team that went in there first, and we we started the, that church. They they had two pastors and no congregation, so we just hit the ground and let's go find their congregation. We were at an, an event. We're having this a party in the park, and uh, and there was this man. His he was a Sikh. If you don't know what Sikhism is, Sikhism was founded by a man in northern India. Well, here's a Sikh living in Bogota, Colombia, spoke English and Spanish, and his name was Paul. This is ironic here. But Paul, the Sikh man, he told me, he says, the only reason you're here is because you're trying to convince people of your American religion. He said, Christianity is a Western thing. And he said, the only reason you're here is because your parents were Christian and they convinced you to be a Christian. And now you're trying to hear to convince everybody in Bogota that Christianity is the, the way. And I said, well, two things. First off, my parents were not Christian. I was not raised in a Christian home. I would say we were agnostic at best. It's not that I wasn't taught about God, but I wasn't taught about God. It was just kind of indifferent. So we didn't know if God existed and like whatever. But then second off, Christianity is not an American religion. I think about it. 
its founder was born in Bethlehem. He ministered in Capernaum, and he was tortured and murdered and then resurrected in Jerusalem. Okay? Christianity is the furthest thing from American religion, but it's for the whole world. Anytime anybody says, hey, Christianity is a Western religion, mm, you need to buy a map. Okay? It's not a Western religion any more than it's a Middle Eastern religion. You know, Jesus told his disciples, he said, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That if you know your Bibles, Acts chapter 1, it began in Jerusalem, then went to Judea, then to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? Jesus Christ is the Lord for all people, all times, all places. That's what Jesus said when he had a conversation with a man by the name of Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world. That word world is the word cosmos. Jesus saying, everybody, God so loved everybody that he gave his only son. How many sons? One son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. It's not that God so loved the Western culture. He loved the world. This message is for everybody. Think about it this way. Let's say you have a disease, something like heart disease. We have medicine for that, right? We have medicine for that, and that medicine works whether you're in Worland, Wyoming, or you're standing in Antarctica. This, this medicine is not a Western medicine. It works everywhere. You see, the gospel, the gospel is a universal cure, but it must be individually applied. Let me say that again. The gospel is the universal cure, but it must be individually applied. Just like that medicine for heart disease, it works, but you got to take it. It's not like, hey, the person standing next to you take, took it, so I'm good to go. No, that doesn't work. Hey, my parents took it, so I'm good to go. Also does not work. It's the same with the gospel. Yes, the cure for sin is individually, is universally the same, but every single individual must apply it, must accept this cure. And the cure is the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, in a world, there's many religions, but there's only one gospel, and this is God's gospel. So here's my question to you, whether you're here with us or whether you're at home. If you come to know the gospel like that, what I mean by that is can you honestly say that this news, this gospel news is the greatest news you've ever heard? I've had some good news in my life. The day that my wife said, yes, I'll marry you. That was good news. The day the doctor said it's a boy, and then so a year later he says to the girl, that's great news, but that great news is nothing compared to the gospel. You know, the truth is there's so many Christians, they live as if that's not the best news they've ever heard. So I ask you, is the gospel the greatest news you've ever heard? Because if it's not the best news you've ever heard, maybe you were just made a profession of faith, but you have no possession of Jesus Christ. This thing you call Christianity, it's just a religious thing, it's a Sunday thing, it's just a cultural thing, but it's not a personal thing. Let me tell you, the gospel is the most personal thing there is. There's a holy God in heaven that desperately loves you, and we are separated from him because of our sin. We have all willfully chosen to, to essentially spit in the face of God. And so there's enmity between us and God. And yet God loves us so much he sent his son to pay for what you have done, for what I have done on that cross. And he endured the very wrath of God. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ 
God, the gospel of God. I would tell you, do this now. As you sit in your home, do this now. To come to acknowledge that I am separated from God and there's nothing I can do, but yet God loves me and sent Jesus to die in my place. And the Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Paul's going to say that when you get to Romans chapter 10, verse 13. It's a beautiful promise that it's nothing we do that he saves us. But there must be a moment of time where you recognize your sinfulness and you call on him. Something along the lines of, dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And my sin, it separates me from you. But Lord, I give you my life. I accept this gospel message. You've done it all. Save me, Lord. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.